Welcome to Expert Gold Radio, which shows you how to leverage your leadership. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira, for this month's show. Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for October 2013. This month we focus on larger organizations. We start with a segment about thought leadership in these sort of organizations, and then we have a segment about the pros and cons of employees bringing their own phones and tablets to work. It's something that a lot of employees want to do, and it does have some benefits, but it does have some downsides as well. Now, if you're running your own business, don't worry, I've got something for you as well. I talk about how to use online courses to add value to your current programs. But let's start with a conversation with Matt Church about thought leadership in large organizations. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira. It's my great pleasure today to be speaking with Matt Church, who's one of the world's leading experts on thought leadership. He's a colleague, a mentor, and I'm, I'm really pleased to say he's a friend of mine as well. And I know that Matt's been talking about thought leadership before the business world even caught on to it. He's a well-known speaker, he's a mentor, and now is the founder of Thought Leaders Global. He himself is a thought leader in the area of thought leadership and leveraging expertise. And today, I specifically want to talk to Matt about thought leadership in organizations, or what we call enterprising thought leadership. So I can't think of any any better person to do that with. So welcome, Matt. Oh, thanks, Gihan. A pleasure to be here with you. I'm really excited to be talking about this topic. I think it can make a big difference in large organisations. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. And I know that you've been working with individuals, you've been working with business owners, you've been working with businesses of all sizes. And today, let's particularly talk about how it can work in larger organisations. Yeah, yeah. You know, when people talk about thought leadership, there's a lot of definitions about what thought leadership is. There's even a bit of debate and controversy, which I know you've been involved with, which I've been involved with. Let's just let's just bypass all the philosophical side of it and let's get practical. So, if you're talking about large organisations, what does thought leadership mean? Well, I, I think the simplest definition of a thought leader is someone who's known for knowing something. So, it's an expert, a subject matter expert, who's got profile. And as a result, has influence and authority. And I think this can drive most organisational agendas very effectively. I mean, that seems pretty obvious, Matt, when you're talking about a business owner or, let's say, an infopreneur, where they themselves are their business. And so their thought leadership is their their business advantage. But how does it work with an organisation? You know, the whole idea of a thought-leading enterprise is one idea, as opposed to enterprising thought leadership. So I think the first step for any business... Uh, large business particularly, is to identify a few key people that they can raise the profile of in the marketplace and use them effectively as rainmakers to drive business and a higher quality of business through the door. So you actually touched on something which I'm curious about, and this is one of the debates and controversies that I've got myself involved with when you talk, mm. when you talk about thought leadership. Is mm. And you mentioned, can, like, can an organization be a thought leader? Because you seem to be talking about individuals in the organizations who are identified as thought leaders. Yeah, well, I think a thought-leading enterprise is one thing. Um, you could identify a few in each sort of category, each sector or each marketplace. But for me... Uh, even to become a thought-leading enterprise, you have to activate individual thought leaders within the business to make it happen. To be a thought-leading enterprise, you need to activate individual thought leaders. Uh, It's very rare that people will say company X is an expert in. They'll say person Y in company X is an expert in. And we refer people, not companies. Uh, Even the biggest companies, when you talk about referrals, we refer the person within that organisation whom we have a relationship with. So thought leadership 
as an organization is still about activating individuals. It's just using the resources and the platform of the whole business, the whole enterprise, if you like, to do that. I think, therefore, it's one of the smartest, most leveraged ways to do it because there's plenty of little startup businesses, plenty of entrepreneurs who can use thought leadership as a positioning strategy. But when an organization starts to do it en masse and on scale, where they identify, you know, six to 12 great thought leaders and start capturing, packaging, and then delivering their IP to the marketplace, they get um, amazing traction incredibly uh, rapidly. Yeah, that's interesting. A couple of things that I just picked up when you talked about being able to leverage the the resource of the organization Mm. and the idea that people refer individuals. I'm just thinking about that, and that's right. When I think about an organization as a thought leader, the, the shining lights, the beacons in there are the individuals. Yeah, and this is something that some organisational cultures will struggle to deal with. But I think it's one of the fundamental shifts, certainly in developed nations, and and I think possibly also in the fast-growth developing nations uh, in the not-too-distant future. You know, I've heard you say it, and I know you've written a book on this, Gihan, the whole idea that there's no I in team. And I know that this series that you're recording, and certainly everything that we're talking about today, is that the future is, that's all there is in team. They're made up of a whole bunch of individuals. So I think thought leadership as a way of leveraging that individual profile for the organization is not only a smart strategy, it's become one of those sort of necessary ones. Ignore it at your peril, I think. Yeah, great. Another trend that's happening at the moment, which is related to thought leadership, but I'd love to get your perspective on it, is this whole idea of content marketing. Organizations have realized that advertising doesn't work anymore, or it Mm. works in a very limited way. So they're moving to content marketing, and there seems to be a bit of an overlap between that and thought leadership. And I think there's a significant difference, and I think you think there's a significant difference. (laughs) I do. I'd like to know what you think. What's the difference between them? And particularly, why do you think that thought leadership is really the significant shift for the future? Well, I think that like many new terms, there's always going to be overlap, particularly when they're poorly defined. So for me, content marketing is essentially about, you know, using tools like polls, surveys, fact sheets. It's about repurposing existing content that might be out there in the marketplace to inform people. It's almost like content marketing is a curation strategy uh, where the organisation chooses to be the museum that holds information relevant to their product, their services or their marketplace. And I think that thought leadership kind of picks up where that leads off. It's more innovative than simple content marketing. And I think the way it does this is that it has to address challenges and aspirations that a market may have in such a way that inspires people and influences them to take action. I think the the following question around this, you know, what's the difference between content marketing and thought leadership and maybe why is it so important now to think about thought leadership is this whole idea that information is now democratised or easily accessible for everybody on the planet. You know, we're one Google click away from hundreds of pages of content. So I'm not even sure content marketing is enough nowadays. What we lack, though, you know, is the filter for all that information. And thought leadership for me is the process of taking information that you may call content 
and giving it meaning and relevance. And so what I love about thought leadership is it's like adding to the body of knowledge on the planet and filtering through the huge bits and bytes of information on the other end of any kind of Google search or deeper and trying to find a way to give it meaning and relevance to particular people. And I think the thought leaders in a company who are doing thought leadership marketing versus just content marketing are really considering the end user and finding ways to create new content in response to their desires and to the big problems that they face on a daily basis. So I think you're saying that thought leadership is even more than content curation because I've heard some people say content curation or that process is the filtering process. It's a bit that adds the meaning and the relevance. Mm. And by just being a content curator, you can actually make lives better for your clients, your prospects, your network. But I think you're saying that thought leadership goes even a step further than that. It does. It goes to creating the conversation, not just broadcasting or repeating it. Content marketing is like thought repeating in my mind, but thought leadership is by definition thought leading. You know, there's kind of four categories of the way you can go about thought leadership, and I think you need all four of them. Curation is where you own the museum and the art gallery on your content. Aggregation is where you interpret what's going on on the planet and what's gone before. So you look at sort of joining the dots between the past to the present and into the future. Propagation is where you might identify key bloggers, uh, authors, thinkers, or other thought leaders on your topic area, and you kind of advance their agenda. And by association, position yourself as a thought leader. I think of Merlin Mann, who did that so brilliantly with David Allen's Get Mm. Things Done Mm. in the productivity space. And then the fourth one, which is where I think the real potency lies, is the fourth type of content piece, if you like, which is the creating of content. And I think it's in that space where most companies will get the biggest bang for their buck because you can't copy that and it can't be imitated by someone else. You could put a curation blog out and your competitor could copy and paste and be on the same page, you know, within the time it takes to refresh a blog. But for you to be ahead of the pack and to position yourself as the thought leaders, you need to be the ones that they're commenting on, the ones they're curating, the ones they're propagating and aggregating information from. So I think the competitive advantage lies in the leadership position, not in the followership position. And I love that, Matt, and I particularly like that it means that content marketing is not irrelevant. It's just a great stepping stone mm. because you take your curation and then you add the propagation, aggregation and creation. And that's how you start building thought leadership. Absolutely. And, you know, it's that Isaac Newton quote, isn't it? It has to be built on the shoulders of mm. to be able to create thought leadership in a in a vacuum or in, from a blank page, I think can be very, very daunting. So you're absolutely right. It is a sequential process, but you want to, as quickly as you can, get to the front of the pack. And it's interesting that everything we've talked about so far has been about thought leadership being external. So it's how you mm. use thought leadership to build your brand externally. But mm. I'm sure that when you start identifying thought leaders within the organization, there must be lots of benefits internally as you recognize and reward people for their expertise. You bet. Uh, you know, for me, there's like this whole constellation of implications when you enterprise thought leadership. Obviously, the one that we're talking about is it's a business growth strategy. It attracts new clients as your thought leaders are positioned in the marketplace and it helps you differentiate competitively yourself against um, other people in the game. 
But it's also one of the best leadership development programs we've seen for high potentials. It internalises expertise. So rather than looking for external management consultants, it's actually finding the clever people within your organisation, taking their knowledge and applying it for commercial gain. That kind of uh, breaks down silos and shares expertise across the business. Um, the publishing nature of thought leadership uh, and the fact that it's transparent and not only in the public domain but even on the organisational wikis and the organisational intranet is just such a smart knowledge-sharing strategy. And I think the one that, you know, takes people by stealth who've ever enterprised thought leadership is it's actually an employer-of-choice strategy because by developing your thought leadership you are attracting other great talented people you're retaining the ones you've got and you're actually developing people into your talent pipeline so whenever you focus on your best and brightest you start to attract a better quality and you also start to inspire those internally to step up so yeah there's a whole bunch of implications positive implications around enterprising thought leadership yeah, and just picking up from what he just said, that's really interesting that thought leadership by its very nature highlights the best and brightest. So when you're looking at attracting talent, you don't have to rely on the existing talent talking to their friends or talking to looking on job advisor because they're thought leaders, you can attract other thought leaders. Yeah, it's, it's essentially it's like one of the things that's been studied around what drives high performers is they're they're driven by the same things as anybody else in an organization, which is kind of like non high performers. But, but if you looked at, at the difference, it's what they prioritize. A non-high performer probably prioritizes money and status. Yeah, And those two things are two of the big five drivers for even the talented people, but it's like drivers four and five, not drivers one, two, three. If you look for the top three drivers of talented people, it's going to be, you know, number three, they want um, self-directed learning. So if you put them in a Myers-Briggs course or some LSI or some corporate training, they almost want to sabotage the process. And they're quite often the naughty kids in the back of the room. So what they're looking for is uh, a project that they can develop through and they can grow through, but that they get to choose the topic. And the whole thing about thought leadership is exactly that. On a 12-month program, you get six to 12 of your best and brightest, and each one of them is essentially going to publish by the end of that year what they learnt that year, what they think about a particular topic. Not only does the organisation get the benefit of that learning, but they get the benefit of having grown and developed in an area of their choice rather than something that's been pushed upon them as a classic learning and development agenda. The second biggest driver, and this is one you know we can talk about for an hour, I think, is the whole idea that the culture that embraces high potentials and talented individuals in an organisation is one that will acknowledge and recognise the individual. Um, so back to your book, There Is I in Team, it's essentially... Um, respecting that and having a culture that can find a way to acknowledge individuals. And rather than just promoting them ahead of their time, they get the acknowledgement of being the author of, the publisher of, the presenter of, or the key thinker in an area. And that status piece is almost like a free promotion. You didn't have to necessarily sack someone. You didn't have to free up people further up the hierarchy, you just gave them the opportunity to shine in an area of content, in an area of expertise. But the final one, and this is really important for employee retention and being keeping real about it, your best and brightest aren't going to be with you forever, but essentially they're building their resume 
and their portfolio while they work with you. And if they can say, I worked for you and I achieved X, and that X is the thing that they published and presented on their year developing thought leadership, um, it becomes a major project boon for them, something that builds their resume, makes them more employable for your competitors, for sure, but it also makes them more valuable for your organisation. Yeah, look, that's really interesting. I was speaking with Anne Rolf, who, as you know, is an expert on mentoring, and she was talking about that as a key difference between mentoring and training, that a mentor can help you build not only what you're going to do for, within the organisation, but can help you build your personal career as well, and that's so important, and more and more employees are looking for that. I don't think it's uh, some people are doing it, Peace. I think it's everybody's doing it. It's just some organisations aren't aware of it. Or if they are aware of it, they don't know how to deal with it. In organisations that had fit in and conformity, um, you know, it's all about there's no I in team. It's all about culture. And they define the culture as the brand of the company. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's the case anymore. The, that's clearly those days have passed, if they ever existed at all. I know that an organisation that will respect and acknowledge my individuality for the benefit of all is one that's going to hold on to me for longer. Yep. Great. So before we finish up, Matt, you mentioned briefly earlier in the conversation, you touched on the idea of you identify your six or 12 thought yeah. leaders and you bring them together in a group and set them off on a 12-month project. Tell me a little bit more about that. So how does Thought Leaders Global help people through that? What does that path look like? Well, whether it's 12 chapters in one book or whether each thought leader creates their own mini book we actually set them the deliverable of writing a book that the company owns mm -hmm. and that the company publishes both physically and digitally um, that's used as a client appreciation gift it's used as a marketing and sales collateral tool so we, we create a tangible that says you will publish this year your thinking and i love that because it puts a, a critical deliverable around the action we also book a conference at the end of the 12-month journey where the 6 to 12 thought leaders will present internally at least and possibly even to key clients their ideas, the things that they've been developing that year. So the both the spoken and the written deliverable at the end of the 12-month journey is fantastic. We then map out a content marketing strategy, which is a, you know, a big way of saying, is there a trade show coming up where we could get you speaking? Is there um, a publication that we could get you writing a column in? And we map out throughout the year all of these tangible publishing touch points so that we've got platforms for thought leadership because there's nothing worse than developing an idea and it just dying in a vacuum. You know, It's like if a tree falls in the forest, does anybody care? You know, if a thought leader has an idea and it doesn't get shared, was it a thought? You know, it's uh, for thought leadership, it's not because it's actually about getting known for knowing something. So we get them speaking in industry events and, as I said, running that internal conference and we, we develop everything towards those key deliverables. But it's about getting them to identify where they can be relevant with their expertise and then actually building a, a series of intellectual property uh, ideas, key insights that, that can be shared in all these different ways and at the same time developing their capability to do that more effectively. Fantastic. So just to finish off, Matt, uh, tell, tell me a little bit more about Thought Leaders Global. And I know that I know that some organisations put the word global in their name when they're really not. It just yeah, means yeah. that they... Yeah, they, <laughs> they visited a... Tasmania once. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> or they've got a Skype phone number in New York or something like that. Um, but I know Thought Leaders Global is global. It is. Uh, so how can you help people all around the world? 
Well, we've got uh, partners in, you know, and growing in at least six different locations around the world. Um, we're interested and we build thought leadership in English-speaking democracies. That's not to go against um, non-democracies and not to go against non-English speaking, but just part of our strategy. That being said, this year we're... Uh, doing some work in the UAE, which is uh, not a democracy. And we're doing so because it's the hub of a lot of Central Asia. And so Prakash, our partner out of Dubai, is um, helping thought leaders in large organisations to, you know, capture, packture and package and deliver their expertise throughout, you know, from Mumbai down. We're, we're keen to bring one of our partners into organisations. We're keen to develop a champion for thought leadership within an organisation who becomes the embedded mentor. And with our partner and that internal champion, who's normally in a L&D role or an innovation role or a comms marketing role or an HR role, we, we help that champion uh, sort of develop the capability embedded in the organisation. We think that that gives it continuity even beyond our one to three years that we might be heavily involved in developing thought leadership. And then we get these six to 12 thought leaders together on a regular basis. We've uh, done this now for many large organisations and we like to work with one organisation in each sector each year. That way we're not developing competitors necessarily. <laughs> and uh, we're always looking for... Not always the market leader, interestingly. You'd find it generally the company that's um, maybe second or third tier who's you know desperate to become the market leader is not far off. This actually gives them some of the quickest runs. You'd be surprised. We found that it's the companies that might consider themselves as not having thought leaders that are the best candidates for it. It's almost as if the humility around that statement gives us the opportunity to work with the expertise that's there that didn't necessarily recognize itself as such. So thoughtleadersglobal.com is a place where people want uh, should go to if they want to get engaged in the Enterprising Thought Leadership Program. What about you, Matt? If people want to get in touch with you directly, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, as in everything we do with Thought Leaders, even if you're part of a company, like I'm part of Thought Leaders Global, we suggest you build your own profile as well and that it be built completely around yourname.com. So you can find out me at mattchurch.com, all the different projects that I'm involved in, um, including Enterprising Thought Leadership, what we've been talking about today. Yeah, and one of the, the one of the flagship books that you've got, Matt, is a great book, is the Amplifiers book, and that's so relevant to this whole conversation that we've been having. It is. It's my uh, reason for being. It's almost my Jerry Maguire manifesto. <laughs> it's essentially a book around helping individuals realise that motivational leadership as an individual uh, and learning how to develop it is the key to um, all forms of organisational effectiveness. At some point in a thought leader's journey, you've got to become an amplifier. You've got to cross that line of being um, the best kept secret in your organisation and actually step up, step out and share your ideas in a way that inspires people and influences them to act. And in thought leadership, influences them to act towards the commercial agenda of the group. Fantastic. Matt Church, as usual, it's been a pleasure and I always learn something new and as I did today as well. So thank you so much for your wisdom and your insights. Oh, my pleasure, Gihan. Always wonderful to be interviewed by someone so switched on. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Talk to you soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Matt. In fact, that was an edited version of a much longer conversation that I had with Matt. I just cut it down to fit within the radio show. If you're interested in getting the full version, I'd be happy to send it to you. Just email me, gihan at gihanperero.com. I'll be happy to send you an MP3 file.
So let's move on to our second segment, which is called BYOD. As you might know, my friend Chris Padney and I wrote the book Out of Office to help you get more freedom in your work life. And we recently talked about BYOD, or bring your own device. So let's join that conversation now. Today is going to be about the idea of bring your own device, or BYOD, which stands for bring your own device. Although one of our colleagues and friends, she said that in her workplace, it's referred to as bring your own disaster. <laughs> and uh, and the idea, the basic idea is that there are a lot of people now who have their own devices, their own smartphones, their own tablets, their own laptops even, and they use it for personal use and just a, there's a whole bunch of stuff on there that they'd like to use for professional business use as well. So they want to bring their own device into the workplace, which is kind of a new idea. It always used to be the fact that it was uh, you go into the workplace and you use work equipment, but now that everyone's got their own computer that they carry around with them in the form of a phone or a tablet, they want to bring it in as well. And so there's this, this big topic of BYOD, bring your own device, and what are the implications? Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about the pros and cons, and then we'll we'll discuss an article that we came across which talked about 10 things to consider when you want to implement BYOD in your workplace. Yeah, but um, BYOD, Gihan, it's often discussed in the context of standard working in an office, so it would seem on the face of it that it's not particularly relevant to out-of-office workers. But in fact, out-of-office involves several different work styles, and one of those, the semi-commuter, who's a person who works uh, part-time remotely and part-time in the office, BYOD is going to be particularly relevant to them because it means that they can use the same devices that they work with at home as they work with when they're in the office. And also, for digital nomads, another one of the out-of-office work styles, if they're working with a client who has a BYOD policy, that means that the digital nomad can bring along their own equipment and they can uh, get to work straight away. They don't have to rely on being set up with special equipment uh, on-site that allows them to access the the client's uh, online resources. It's perhaps not so relevant for the third work style, the e-commuter, the full-time telecommuter, someone like me who works pretty much full-time out of office, but uh, a little bit more on that later. And in addition to the work styles, much of the technology that makes out of office possible, so things like the cloud and mobile devices, also enable BYOD. So many of the principles that we talk about when we talk about the out of office work style also apply to BYOD. However, I said uh, I'm, I'm an e-commuter, so BYOD is not so relevant to me. But recently, I guess I was a bit of a digital nomad, Gihan, and I went to work on site for uh, my main clients. So I spent a couple of weeks in the UK and Switzerland. And when I was on site, I took with me um, a notebook PC. I took my Android tablet and my Android smartphone. And all three of those devices I was able to work with on site because they've got a, a kind of BYOD policy. I was able to connect to their guest Wi-Fi network and, and access online resources. And also some of the tools that I use to access stuff that's behind the corporate firewall, I could also uh, use to get access to corporate data. And I also noticed that many of my uh, full-time office-bound colleagues also were using their own devices. So many of them had smartphones. There were people with using their own um, iPads. And one of the guys I worked closely with, he had his own high-end MacBook that he was using for development because the standard desktop PC is pretty mediocre bit of hardware. And he was able to be much more productive by using his uh, high-performance MacBook rather than the standard uh, standard issue kit. Yeah, you make a good point there, Chris, that, that, you know, you said for yourself, 
you're not the, you're not the sort of person who needs to think about BYOD most of the time, but occasionally you do. And I think that's true of everything we're going to discuss today. That the whole concept of BYOD seems to be something that's big corporate. And what we're talking about today is absolutely relevant for big corporate, but it's also relevant for small businesses as well and independent contractors and the sort of situation you described. So um, even though it may not be called a BYOD, the principles still apply. Yeah. So let's jump into, actually, before we jump into those 10 things, let's look at some of the pros and cons. And um, we talked about uh, when you were assigning roles for what we discussed here, Chris. So we're going to do good good cop and bad cop, and you're going to do the good cop. So that's that's good. So let me me talk about some of the benefits of BYOD, and then you can shoot me down in flames. (laughs) So, I mean, you look at it uh, from both the worker's viewpoint and from the employer's viewpoint. So from the worker's viewpoint, having your own device, there's some obvious benefits, like you have you have much greater choice and freedom in how you work, and you can be more productive because you're using some equipment that's familiar with you, uh, familiar to you. You're only carrying around one piece of equipment. Uh, I have a number of friends who work in organisations, and they they carry two phones. They carry a work phone and a personal phone. So, in a very simple uh, at a very simple level, you actually uh, reduce the amount of material that you. Uh, devices that you carry around with you that you have the potential to lose. So those sort of things can be really, really helpful. Um, and it can save you some money as well. Um, if the employer pays for the cost of some of your devices, and I've seen some advice that says they should pay two thirds and you pay one third, then it can actually be cheaper for you to have your own personal technology and have it subsidized by your employer. And there might be some tax benefits as well. And we're certainly not tax lawyers or accountants, so we're not suggesting that you should automatically claim that, but you should talk to your accountant about that because there may be some benefits in using your personal devices for at least part-time for business or professional work. So that's from the employee's viewpoint. From the employer, you also get some of the benefits of those, those benefits carry over. So you do get greater productivity from, from your employees because they're using devices that they're familiar with. And they do get to work out of office and out of hours. And that's a little bit to do with mobile uh, devices, not necessarily BYOD, but it does encourage them if they're on the iPad and they're doing something, that they're checking Facebook, they might also get a work email at the same time and they might just spend a few minutes addressing that. Uh, the other thing, of course, is that Gen Ys kind of love this and as an employer, if you do encourage and you, you're proactively promoting the idea that they can bring their own devices to work, it can be a really big, uh, big help for the Gen Ys and can be something that attracts them to the workplace and, and keeps them there. And finally, uh, from an expense point of view, it can actually save you some money as well because, again, the employee is subsidizing the the equipment that they're using. And, and as well as that, you don't have to spend time and money in some of the other infrastructure costs that you would if you're managing everything yourself. Very good, Gihan. So over to the dark side. So some of the disadvantages of BYOD, and I'll start with the perspective of the worker, is that once you're using your own device for work, it enables you to work out of office and out of hours. So there could be the tendency to overwork, as uh, that's a problem we've talked about in the context of out of office work. Uh, but uh, now it's uh, anyone who has a BYOD policy uh, can also be exposed to the tendency to overwork. So you just have to set some clear guidelines about uh, personal time and work time. You might also have to cede some control of your personal devices to uh, your employer. So if it's done properly, that might not be too onerous, but it might involve installing some software uh, on your device that uh, enables security and antivirus uh, mechanisms. 
It also means that you're going to have some extra IT responsibility because you've got a device that you're now using at work, so there might be important data on it, so it might mean that you have to ensure that you're doing proper backups, that you've got proper security software installed, and that you're keeping your apps and operating system up to date. And then uh, another issue that arises is compatibility. So there are a variety of different devices with different operating system on them, from Apple to Windows to Android, and each of these can have different versions of software installed. So there could be some issues around compatibility between the different flavors of operating systems and software and the different vendors of those tools as well. Turning to the employer's perspective, uh, a lot of the discussion of BYOD is around security. So there are a lot of different aspects to that. Firstly, there's data security. So you now have data and information on personal devices of your employee, of your employees. So if those devices aren't properly secured, then there is a risk that uh, hackers could get access to that data and uh, make off with it. Then there's problems around computer security where you have a whole bunch of devices that if they're not properly secured uh, can get infected with viruses. And then the reciprocal of that is that devices can be brought into the workplace, can connect to the corporate network, and if they're infected with viruses, then those viruses can be set loose uh, behind the corporate firewall onto the corporate network. So all sorts of measures around securing the devices and your network and your data need to be taken care of. Now, to have a BYOD policy takes time and effort and cost to manage and implement and maintain and review. That, uh, that obviously is going to cost time and money, so uh, hopefully the costs aren't greater than the benefits that you get from BYOD. And finally, there are some potential legal, conse legal consequences. So if people are using tools like Dropbox or other cloud storage um, um, offerings to put data onto, then it might mean that that data is being stored on um, on servers in foreign countries, and corporations do have legal obligations in some um, some areas to make sure that all their data is held within a particular uh, a particular country or jurisdiction. So it's important to make sure that uh, uh, those those legal requirements of the corporation or business are adhered to when you have BYOD. Yeah, no, thank you. So that's, uh, you call it the dark side, Chris, and it is like it's scary. Some of those things, and so some of these things are things that organisations are just facing for the first time. When, and when everything is completely enclosed and internal, then uh, organisations and the IT departments feel they've got control of everything, and suddenly BYOD just opens up the potential for lots and lots of problems. Mm. So let's let's look at some of those things, and if, what we're going to do is look at these. Uh, there's a really interesting article I read on Lifehacker, which quoted some Gartner research. Uh, about BYOD or a kind of presentation about BYOD and it was, it's about how to make BYOD work better. So we're going to say, yes, there are some problems, but let's look at how to make that work for you in your organization so that you can facilitate people being more productive and actually working, giving them more freedom and choice. So there, there are 10 items in that. So we're just going to go through them one at a time and well, let's take them in turn, Chris. And, uh, and you've grouped them in a nice, in a nice sequence. So I really appreciate that. Uh, so we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time on each of these, but we will cover some of the main issues that BYOD raises and how to address them. 
the first thing is just a philosophical thing more than anything else, and that is believe that it's possible. So be be positive about this. Believe that you can do it, rather than automatically assume that it's going to cause a sort of problems. And it's always a it's always a good place to start with because the IT programmers and the designers tend to be very creative and they have a can-do attitude, whereas IT departments tend to have the opposite. They're very risk averse and they're defensive and they want to prevent things from happening because they understand some of the risks that are involved with computer security and data security. Uh, but it, it might take a bit of a mind shift change for them uh, or mindset change for them to go, OK, yes, we can do this rather than automatically say, no, here are the risks. Yeah, absolutely. The second uh, point from uh, that presentation was to try and maximize freedom of choice. So if you're having a bring your own device policy, uh, try and allow people to bring the devices that they own and want rather than saying something like, well, we have Windows software and Windows hardware uh, in, at work, therefore the only devices that you can bring are Windows smartphones and Windows tablets. Uh, it's not really a bring-your-own-device, especially if it's Windows, because I don't think many people actually have Windows smartphones or Windows devices outside Microsoft employees. So try and uh, be as broad as possible and allow people to bring their iPads and iPhones and Android tablets tablets and Android smartphones and uh, their Windows devices as well if they, if they have them. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to be much of a BYOD policy if you've been restrictive in, in the types and, and makes of the devices that people can bring in. That's right, but that is challenging, isn't it? Because if you if you say, let's, let's say, say you can bring your own device as long as it's an iPad because we understand iPads and we can control what's what's done with them, then that's easier to manage than saying you can bring any device you like and we have to make sure that our policies and our implementations, software-wise and hardware-wise, are strong enough to be able to manage that. That's much harder. Yeah, so you can see why there would be a tendency, uh, a tendency towards that sort of restriction, Gihan. But I think some of the later points that we talk about, where we focus on data, for instance, help to uh, broaden your BYOD policy by making the focus not be on the devices and the tools that people use, but rather on the information that they work with. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep, and we will get to that. You're right. So the third thing is this idea of IT departments, organizations wanting to control everything. Mm-hmm. So the, the principle is don't try to control what you don't own. If the device is owned by the employee, let them have control of it. You've got to teach them how to use it well, and maybe you need to install something, uh, software on there to help to facilitate them using it better. But don't take responsibility for that. Uh, let them take responsibility with the appropriate education around it. Yeah, yeah. So I think this whole section, Gihan, is really about control, isn't it? That And believing that it's possible. That was the first point that we made. Uh, where, as you said, IT departments are really about trying to control and lock, thing down, lock things down as much as possible. And it really is counter to their nature to have things like BYOD, where they give people freedom to bring their own devices of any type. And it must be quite scary for them. Yeah, and exactly, and that's why, like our colleague refers to it as bring your own disaster, yeah. because yeah. That, that's that's automatically what they're thinking about, and that's right. That's IT departments should be thinking about that, but not necessarily at the exclusion of everything else. It should yeah. be a priority, but not necessarily a blanket policy. Yep. Okay. Our next, uh, the next four points uh, all focus on data, and the, the guy who uh, from Gartner who presented uh, presented this talk. He said that the idea should be to manage information rather than applications because 
a business's value is in the information and data that it has, not in the applications and the tools that they use to work with that data. So if you start looking at uh, BYAD from the perspective of the information people are working with, then um, you're less focused on the applications and tools that people are using, including the devices that they're, u that, that, that they're using those tools with. So that gives you a lot more freedom in the kind of devices that you can use and the kind of applications that you can manage your information with. Yeah, that's right. And the next point follows on from that, which is to move your data into the cloud. So it's not just not only just focusing on the data, but make sure the data is accessible basically on the internet. And we've been talking about the whole idea of the cloud ever since we started talking about this whole concept of out-of-office because it really does facilitate the out-of-office work style, but it very much facilitates BYOD as well because if you put your data online, it, it solves a number of problems, Chris. I mean, the obvious one is different formats because everyone's accessing the same data. They're presumably accessing it even with different tools, but they're accessing the same actual physical can I say physical? <laughs> the, same, the same piece of information rather than everyone having their own copy. And that's the other thing. You don't have to worry about people share, uh, taking copies of stuff, putting them on USB sticks, and then having to share them around, having problems with compatibility because everything's in the one place and is accessed through the cloud. So as much as you know, we, we love the idea of putting information in the cloud for the out-of-office work style, but it's great for BYOD as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and you mentioned Giha and formats uh, by putting things into the cloud that you, that you that you've um, that you focused on a particular format, and and that's another important idea is to focus on the data formats rather than the tools that people are using to to work with information. So rather than saying that uh, people need to work with Microsoft Office files, uh, focus instead on the idea that people need to edit documents and uh, that they don't have to use, sorry, rather than saying that people have to use Microsoft Office, they have to use Word and they have to use Excel, focus on the idea that people need to edit documents and people need to work with spreadsheets. And in doing so, then you're focusing on the data and the formats that they're in rather than the tools that they have to use in order to do that. And, and related to that is the next point, which actually uh, I'd be interested in your opinion about this, Chris, because I think I partly agree with this one. And the, the point is embrace open standards. So as much as possible, use data that are available using open standards, because if you have a closed format, then it's much harder to share across different platforms. And I kind of I get the principle behind that, which is that you want something that if somebody is coming in with an iPad, then they can still access it uh, the same as if they're coming in with an with some sort of Android tablet or a or a Windows phone. But I'd rather say embrace common standards, so things that are that are popular and available widely across different platforms. Even if they're not open, they might be good enough. I remember way back in the computer science days, Chris, there was a there's a quotation from some famous computer scientist that said mm. the great thing about standards is that there's so many of them. So many to choose from, that's so right. So many to choose from, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, look, and I think that now, even if it's not open, if it's if it's familiar and common and popular among a number of platforms, that might be good enough. So you don't want to choose something that's only available, say, on iOS, so that only Apple users can use it. But equally, if it's available on iOS, Android, and Windows, that's probably good enough for 99% of what you need for BYOD access. Yeah, this is a, it's an interesting point, Kihana. And uh, so, so for instance, um, the way that I was thinking of this particular point was, 
if you were to say mandate uh, that your documents are all in Microsoft format, then that's that's kind of like a de facto standard. So OpenOffice and LibreOffice and some of the Android um, productivity tools and Google Drive can generally work with Microsoft Office file formats. Um, there are there is an open format. I think it's called ODF. But I think even though that's an open standard, I think fewer tools would work with that particular file format. So I guess it's about using, as you say, a common format, one that's going to that you're going to be able to work with the most kind of devices and the, and the widest variety of tools, as, and that's not necessarily going to be an open one. Yep, exactly. That's a perfect example of exactly what I meant. Yep. Cool. All right, so that's uh, data, and the next one, the next group of points is all about security. So we mentioned that some of the cons of BYOD, some of the dark side of BYOD is all about the risks you face in losing data or being infected with viruses. So the first point is to ensure that your data, that's where your business value is, that your data is encrypted whenever possible. So that means when you've got mobile devices being used, you have to have good password practices. There are some tools that allow you to remotely wipe data from from devices if they happen to get stolen or or are lost. so, as I said, that might be one of the onerous things that you've got to cede some control of your device to the corporation to allow them to be able to uh, have these remote wipe uh, systems in place. Yeah, and I think this, it's really interesting that in this Gartner presentation, in all of these 10 tools, uh, 10 ideas, this is the one about security, about making sure your data is encrypted. But I'm surprised that Gartner didn't focus more on the security issues because, of course, that's the biggest concern of IT departments and, and organizations and, and their CIOs. Because it seems like a big issue, and uh, they've, all they're saying is encrypt your data. Uh, they're not saying much more than that, like encrypt your devices, and t- or rather teach people how to encrypt their devices. And I was kind of curious about that. Yeah, I, some of the other articles that I read, Gihan, one of the, some of some of them were really focused on this data thing, and they were they were almost entirely devoted to locking down devices and and having encryption and password policies and remote wipe facilities and all those sorts of things, and they seemed so focused on that uh, that it seemed quite restrictive and not uh, about BYOD so much, which I think is why I quite like this particular article because it focused on some of the other aspects of enabling BYOD. Um, so, yeah, it, was, it, it is unusual in that regard. Yeah, that's, that's right. And in, in fact, if we were going to add an 11th one, I think that's the one I'd add, uh, I'd add which is to teach your, teach your employees to be very, very careful with the data and with security, sorry, um, including data and the apps and just managing the devices, doing backups. And we've talked about this in the out-of-office book, Chris, and in, in past podcast episodes, but it really is important. And most people don't think carefully enough about that. Uh, it's nice that some of those things are automated now. So, for example, if you use Dropbox, uh, it'll automatically back up your photos and your videos uh, that you take on your phone or your tablet, it'll back them up automatically to Dropbox. You don't have to think about that. Uh, so some of this stuff is automatic, but some of it isn't. And yeah. some of it you just take for granted. Yeah. There's an article, one of, this, one of the articles that you referred me to, Chris, uh, linked to another article, which is talking about online banking. And it said that that, that whole idea of that, that two-factor authentication is no longer as effective anymore. So just to explain what that means, it's the you've probably done this yourself. If you if you do online banking and you want to make a payment to somebody for the first time, uh, many banks, online banking systems, will now send you a code to uh, by SMS to your phone, which you have to then type in. So you're on your PC, you're on online banking, 
you're going to make a payment. It says, we've sent you a code to your phone, type in that code, and you get the SMS. So it just proves that it's like if somebody hacks into your uh, online banking account, then they can't make a payment to themselves because they don't have your phone. They don't yeah. receive the SMS. But now more than half of uh, online transactions in Australia are done from phones. So if somebody steals your phone, they can access your online account and they get the SMS. Yes. Yeah. So all of that, that security or that, that, that is really, people are lulled into false sense of security there because uh, those sort of things are, are just becoming more common now where people are using the same devices for both. And again, until I saw that article, I didn't, uh, when I saw that article, I thought, wow, actually that's true. I've always thought that that was a good security feature, but maybe it's not as secure as I thought. Yeah, it's just this shift in focus to mobile platforms, Gihan, mobile devices. So many more people are um, using mobile devices for banking and for work. Bring your own device. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's a bit of a tangent, but apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back on track. So we're talking about security still, and the, the point that Gartner makes here is to license individuals, not their devices. So when you think about giving access to people, giving access to your network, you've got to think about who's licensed to use it. And the point they're making is don't license the devices because people do change their devices frequently and uh, for, for various reasons. But make sure that the licensing is to the individual so you know who's authorized to access your network, who's got access to software, who's got access to certain applications and the data. But it's very much about the who rather than the device that they're using to access it because otherwise it's going to be a real pain when they change their device, and it's just going to become a burden for IT departments to manage, uh, which means it's just one extra factor against them implementing it in the first place. Yeah, and the, this final point, authenticate people and applications, follows on from the one that you've just uh, you've just made, Gihan, because as well as people changing their devices uh, on a frequent basis, people also... Um, swap devices between people so we've got a tablet at home and I use it and my wife Cherie uses it and my daughter uses it as, as well so uh, if the device is authenticated that doesn't necessarily mean that the person who's using the device is authenticated so you've got to make sure that the authentication is based on the identity of the person or and or the application that's accessing the information. Yeah, that's right. And when I first read this, I was thinking, okay, what's the difference between the licensing and the authentication? And it is quite different. So, you know, you might have a software license that you've got the license to use it, Chris, and but, but that's your license. So you've got the license to use it and you can use any device, any application to use it, whereas authentication is more around the security of that, where it just says, have, a, have you got the right to log in and access this data? That's right. Yep. Very good. Yeah. Okay. So those are, those are 10... Uh, expanding on the 10 things that came from that Lifehacker article. And, of course, we will have a link to that in the blog post for for this particular episode. Absolutely. Uh, Is there anything that you wanted to add, Gihan? I think the main thing is uh, comes back to the very first point, which is just believe it's possible. And for out-of-office workers and for workers in general, it's going to be the way of the future. So um, you can resist, 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 and... You should be cautious about it. You should be cautious about implementing a BYOD policy in your organization. And maybe there are some organizations where it where it shouldn't be implemented, where the security restrictions are so where the security is so important or the the risks are so great or the legislation just is so restrictive that you shouldn't have it. But that's I think that's a minority of organizations. Uh, for most organizations they do have some requirements, but 
those requirements can be managed as long as they're thought through properly uh, in a BYOD environment. Excellent. Yeah. Do you want to work from virtually anywhere? The internet makes it possible, and the book Out of Office shows you how. Get your copy at outofofficebook.com and get more convenience, comfort, and freedom in your work life. If you work in a leadership role in a large organization, I hope you found those two segments useful. Now let's change our focus and look at thought leaders running their own businesses. And one of the best ways that you can add value to your programs is with online courses. I've got a full audio program called Keep the Learning Alive on just this topic. And here's an extract from it explaining the power of online courses. We're going to be talking about using online courses to add value to your workshops, seminars, conference presentations, and other events. See, the problem is that you might know that you're delivering great value in those workshops and seminars, and your participants and your clients might know it as well. But that alone isn't enough to convince them to book you or buy tickets. Because one of the biggest problems that they have, one of the biggest concerns they have, is despite how much value you might be offering in your programs, they know that they're not going to take action afterwards. If you're selling to corporate clients, they worry that their people who attend are going to go, take lots of notes, even be sincere about taking action, but they're going to get caught up in everything else that's going on in their job. And it can be worse when you're selling to individuals because they know how bad they can be at taking action. So that stops them from signing up in the first place. Now, one of the ways you can address this issue is with an online course. An online course is a series of emails that are sent automatically to the participants at scheduled intervals after your program. So you reinforce the material that you taught, you remind them to take action, and you rebuild the bridge between your course and their day-to-day activities. So online courses have benefits for you, for your participants, and your clients. Here's why. Let's look at your participants first. They embed the learning for participants. When they learn the material for the first time in your workshop, they might understand it in theory, but it's only later, when they have to apply it to their life, that they really find out whether they really understand it. Now, most trainers know this, but they usually have to leave it to the participants to try out the material later. And some will, but many won't, especially if it's new, daunting, or risky. And you know what? Most training actions are new, daunting, or risky. However, if they get an email from you reminding them to take action, they're far more likely to do so. For those who are willing to take action anyway, the emails are it's just a timely prompt to do so. And those who are unsure might do so anyway because they see an online course as part of the training program, not just an extra. Second thing is they add value to your clients. Your corporate clients are now expecting much more value for their money. A one-off workshop might not be enough anymore. By adding an online course that extends the training by weeks or even months, you increase the perceived value of your training. And actually, you increase the real value because you're doing more to help your participants embed the learning. And the last thing for you is that they boost your training fees. See, by offering an online course as part of your workshop, you increase the value of the whole package. And so you can justify increasing your fee. Some of my clients have added many tens of thousands of dollars each year to the bottom line simply by adding an online course to their existing workshop or seminar. And even if you don't want to increase your fee, your online course becomes a value-added product that demonstrates higher value to your client. It can also be an optional extra that you can use as a negotiating point when discussing the program with your client. And the best thing of all is you only have to do the work once. You only have to do the work once in setting up the course and then you leave it to software to deliver the course material for you. So don't ignore the humble online course. Online courses are delivered by email, which is not the most exciting technology around, especially with all the fuss nowadays about things like iPhone apps and videos and interactive games and Facebook. But don't be distracted by all this hype. By all means, you can add audio, video, surveys and other stuff to make your course material more engaging. But you still deliver it all by email because a person's inbox is still one of the most important places in their work life. 
So in this program, we're going to be talking about the use of online courses for many purposes. The one which I've mentioned already is follow-up material to live presentations, and there are others as well. We'll cover them a little bit later. So who's this for? I work mostly with infopreneurs, so professional speakers, trainers, coaches, consultants, authors, other information experts and thought leaders. And online courses are particularly useful for infopreneurs because they're a natural extension of your current presentations. So you're already delivering high-value content to clients. It's now a matter of turning that into an online course instead or in addition to the existing programs. Now, that's not to say it's, a, it's an easy task. It's not trivial, but it's certainly easier for you than for people who don't have your intellectual property. I've worked with dozens of clients on their online course strategy. You'll meet a few of them very soon. So I know what works and doesn't. I also use online courses myself in my business, both as marketing tools and as paid products. What I'll be talking about is stuff that I have practical first-hand experience with as well. And why now? Well, let me tell you about Matt Church. Matt Church was my first client to talk about online courses. And when Matt first described this concept, which was way back in 1998, it was a pretty new idea. And over time, it's become much more common now. Many speakers and trainers are already offering online courses to their clients. And if you're not, you might be missing out on a competitive advantage. It's also become more common for people everywhere to turn to the internet for their education. Now, although there's definitely a place for live in-person training, many people turn to the internet instead, or in addition to, for their education. So by offering online courses, you tap into that market. And finally, it's just becoming harder to fight your way through the mass of advertising and promotional material bombarding your clients. You can use a free online course to reach out directly to them, so you stay front of mind with them, while at the same time delivering high-value content that continues to reinforce your status as an expert and as an authority. So here's what's coming up in the program. So I'm going to start by describing a few examples of clients who are using online courses effectively. Then I'll talk about some of the benefits. Some of them you've probably considered, others might be new to you. Then we look at different types of online courses and then how to position them from a marketing viewpoint with your clients. I'll then show you some easy ways to create online courses from existing content and then we turn to the details of planning and writing a course and then I'll look at briefly how to sell your courses on your website. Enjoy the program. Let me give you some examples of online courses in action to give you an idea of how infopreneurs and thought leaders are using online courses in their business. So I'll give you four examples here of people who are actively using online courses to boost their bottom line. The first is somebody I mentioned before, Matt Church. So Matt at mattchurch.com is one of Australia's leading conference speakers. He was, in fact, my first client to use online courses. He took an innovative approach to his first website. His website itself had no promotional material on it, no marketing material, no information about his presentations. Instead, the only thing on the home page was a password box. And what Matt would do was sell access to his website to the corporate clients who booked him for a conference. So to give out the password at the conference, everybody who had the password could sign up to follow up online courses. For example, because his topic was related to health and energy, he had a 21-day follow-up course for attendees to get full value from his presentation. Matt's site now, like most others, does include promotional material as well now, but it also still has his hidden resources, and that includes online courses. The second person is David Penglaze. So David, and you can find his website at salescoachcentral.com, also uses online courses extremely well. So like Matt, David started by offering follow-up courses to complement his sales training workshops. But unlike Matt, David would ask the client for the attendees' names and email addresses, and then he would sign them up to the courses himself. So that way he could keep track of who was signing up to the courses, and he could also license his work to some of his corporate clients. And he's now expanded part of his website to a full membership site, and that's where Sales Coach Central comes from. And that still uses online courses as a key part of the educational service offering. 
The next person is Keith Abraham. So you can find Keith at keithabraham.com. He's another early adopter of online courses. And for Keith, they were particularly important because his main topic area at the time when he started was all about customer loyalty. So to practice what he preached, what he would do was he'd offer free online courses to his clients as a loyalty tool. Now, although he didn't charge money for the courses themselves, they did bring him a lot of business because clients saw them as really high-value gifts. And the last person is John Hyman, and you can find him at commercialrealestatetraining.com.au. He also uses online courses to deliver follow-up educational material. He does a lot of work for people in the real estate industry, and he delivers a lot of online courses to complement his face-to-face workshops and his other presentations and his consulting. Now, his approach has been so successful, he now works as a consultant to many real estate associations and offering online training to the commercial real estate market. So those are four examples that will just give you a little bit of an idea of how you can use online courses in your own business. I hope you found it useful. If you'd like to get the full audio program, you can either buy it from the website gihanperera.com or join my eGurus community at eGurus.info. I reckon joining the community is a better option because you get access to many other resources as well. In fact, this month we focus on online courses. So if you found the previous segment useful, now is the time to join eGurus and learn how to create online courses yourself. Are you a speaker, trainer, coach, consultant, or thought leader? If you'd like to use the internet to get more business or deliver your material, join the eGurus community. Find out more and sign up at eGurus.info. So that's it for Expert Gold Radio for this month. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something that you can use in your organization. Next month, I'll be back with Tony Fountain, one of my very first clients and a true entrepreneur and visionary in the online space. Talk to you then. Bye for now. You've been listening to Expert Gold Radio. If you'd like to subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.